0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 472 of the podcast and it is Friday 17th of January 2020 as I record this. So, today I'm talking with Kate Harrison about pitch power, and it is a super useful interview, whatever you write. And Kate has a background in television, but she also writes novels and nonfiction, and she's a hybrid author like she's super talented in all these areas. And she knows all about pitching agents, publishers, and uh, TV executives for show ideas as well as because she also publishes uh, independently. She also knows how to write blurbs and book descriptions to pitch your book to readers. Because this is the truth, <laughs> creatives, we have to pitch our book whatever, however we publish. It just depends who we're pitching to. But some of these principles are consistent. Also, uh, Kate talks about how we can use the pitch to strengthen our book ideas before we even write the book. And this is a challenge for someone like me, because I'm a discovery writer, and it depends what kind of writer you are. uh, But I tend to, it kind of bubbles up, and then I write it. (laughs) And then I figure out what uh, what it is at the end, which is how I can't write to market for fiction. And I basically just bimble along, writing what the muse says, and having a good time. But I know that this is an area I need to strengthen. So I found this interview fascinating and I know you're going to find it useful. Whatever stage you are in your career, however you write, whether you want to be traditionally published or independent, this is really useful. So that is coming up. In publishing and book marketing news this week, good news for audiobooks. You know how (laughs) bullish I am on audiobooks. So Findaway Voices announces new promotional pricing tools. So you can submit pricing promotions to Chirp and also to Apple through their interface. So essentially, and again, this is in beta right now, uh, but this is going to be available a bit like on Kobo Writing Life for promos there. So I've um, got access and I've submitted books. Now, in the past, you could apply for promotions, but it was more like spreadsheets and enter your number here. And it it was a bit clunky. But now it's more like the Kobo Writing Life side where there's a tab for marketing and you go in and you submit your book. And basically how I deal with this type of marketing is I just apply every single month for everything I can and uh, hope that something gets through. I have had emails from people saying, oh, you know, I try the Kobo writing life promotions and I don't get accepted every time. And it's like, well, that's life. (laughs) It's not, you know, you don't get accepted every time for these things, but you have to keep uh, submitting. So I uh, have also heard from Bookbub uh, about ads for audiobook listeners. Um, so I'm going to start that beta as well. So these are really good signs that the audiobook promotion market is starting to get somewhere. Uh, a good reason to go wide with audiobooks is being able to do this kind of promotional pricing because with ACX, uh, you don't control your price. So with uh, Findaway Voices, you can control your price and then you can do promotional pricing. So I am obviously continuing to push for Chirp Books and Authors Direct for selling Audio Direct uh, to go global and not just be U.S. Uh, centric, but uh, obviously it takes time to spread into other markets. But hopefully we will see that happen as we've seen with other um, other software over time. Basically, I would say we're around sort of 2010 for audiobook. If you look at the development of ebooks, if you listen to the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Orna Ross about the last decade with uh, mainly digital ebooks, print print-on-demand and the start of audio, but it feels like you know, 2010, in terms of the ecosystem for audiobook marketing, is still not very developed as yet. But we are getting there. And Find Away Voices and Chirp, uh, which is a bookbub uh, service, is, you know, doing well at forging ahead. So that is exciting. I'll link to um, the post in the show notes, but it's the Find Away Voices blog, which is great to subscribe to if you are wide with audio. So in personal stuff, basically, I am, uh, so I've got the line edits back, well, the proofreading uh, final pass on audio for authors. So I'm updating each chapter with the proofread. Then I also put it through Grammarly because I think Grammarly picks up different things around word choice which is really interesting. Which is not necessarily picked up on a proofread because it's correct. It just could be better. And then I'm narrating each chapter for audio. Now, what's really interesting? This is this is the first book I've really written specifically with the audio book in mind. So the one. Before this, productivity for authors, I used the transcripts of a course to turn that into a draft for a book. And then I edited the draft and then I recorded the audiobook. But this book I have written with audio in mind. And boy, is it going so much faster! My narration is much smoother because it's easier to narrate because I've written it with audio in mind. So I'm, I'm really excited about that because there is a chapter in the book about writing for audio and I really feel like it's working and it's coming through. So very cool. I am aiming to finish the narration by the end of January. So hard at work in the sound booth. <laughs> And of course, in audio for authors, uh, subtitle, audiobooks, podcasting, and voice technologies. I links to everything I do in my entire process, so that will be useful. Still on pre-order uh, if you're interested. It's it's kind of annoying because you can't do a pre-order for uh, audiobooks. And you can do some for print books, but because I don't do my print formatting until I've finished narrating now, because once I've narrated, I do make little changes because when I'm narrating, I'm like... "Mm." I think I'll change that. It will sound better if I do that, do it this way. And so I, I wait till I've got the f- entire manuscript recorded, and then that's kind of set in stone. So it's interesting how my process has changed over time. But yeah, I'm, I, to be honest, I'm so, I'm really proud of this book. It feels very important to me. I hope it's useful for you. But it feels like a decade's worth of learning in in this book. So yeah, I'm I'm really proud of it actually. So. Oh, I hope it's useful. <laughs> it's good though, isn't it? To be proud of what we create and part of our body of work and being useful for some people, but also embedding what we've learned in our writing is such an important part of the process. Okay. Talking of writing, winding the process back, I start my writing process in Scrivener. And I've, been, I've now written over 30 books with Scrivener. It is my first choice uh, writing software, I I just I did write my first novel in Word, and so I must have written my first nonfiction books in Word as well. But boy, Scrivener just makes everything much easier. So I take it all the way through to the end of the first major edit in Scrivener, and then I move into Vellum. Um, so basically, we are doing a Scrivener webinar because. I get so many emails from people and they say, oh, I, I know you use Scrivener, but it's just, I find it a bit difficult to use. And how, how is it really good software? Uh, so Joseph Michael, the Scrivener coach, is coming back to do a webinar on how you can get Scrivener to do exactly what you want and accelerate your writing career in less than an hour. And uh, Joe does a great webinar on Scrivener. I I still learn something every time. So what we'll do on the webinar, is I will do the first couple of uh, minutes and I will show you what i I do on Scrivener and then Joe will do a tutorial where you actually see how to use Scrivener from the very basics. Uh, so if you if you know how to use Scrivener, like the first 10 minutes of Joe's stuff will be a bit basic. If you know nothing, you'll go from zero to knowing what to do. But even if you're an advanced level Scrivener user, I bet you you will learn something. So I always learn something from Joe. Uh, so this webinar will be on Thursday. 30, 30. <laughs> Apparently, I sound very West Country sometimes. <laughs> uh thursday the 30th of january at 3 p.m u.s eastern 8 p.m uk as ever register for your free place and you'll get the replay at uh thecreativepen.com forward slash jan 30 so jan N three zero. links in the show notes so that is free webinar on Scrivener thursday 30th of january come and join us the creative forward slash jan 30 and uh, yes it's learning time of the year uh, webinar tastic but this, this this is such a good one uh, i know this is a popular one so yeah come join us mm-hmm. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments on the show. The Near AL podcast certainly struck a few chords in terms of escaping distraction. Robin Sarti says, listening to the show while renovating my office, oh, how today's episode spoke to me. First time I've ever re-listened to a podcast as soon as I finished. The antidote for distraction is forethought." Thank you so much for this interview. I'm so glad it was that useful, Robin. That's amazing. So... Super uh, and Diana Gunn says, listening to the Creative Pen, and as a freelance non-fiction writer by day and fantasy author by night, I 100% agree that fiction is harder because you have to make decisions for your characters and also sit in their discomfort. Yeah, and uh, if you didn't haven't listened to that episode yet, Nia and I talk about uh, you know the fact that writing fiction is is harder, and I said it's because we have to make so many decisions. Uh, you're just all the time, you know, partly we get tired in our normal real life (laughs) because we have to make decisions about everything. Uh, But when you're writing fiction, you're making decisions for other people, (laughs) which can also be quite tiring. Uh, Okay. And then Casey Julius says, just finished listening to the Reflections podcast 466 on the past decade in indie publishing. For someone just starting out with my debut indie release, it's a great overview and perspective on how far we've come. I'm so glad you found that useful, Casey. And yeah, starting out, I mean, this is the thing people always say, oh, wasn't it easier to start out a decade ago? It's like, well, no, to be honest, (laughs) because we had no infrastructure, no ecosystem. And, you know, a decade ago, I couldn't even publish on KDP as an international author. So, you know, you have to look at the pros and cons. (laughs) But, you know, things change all the time and new opportunities arise. Things that used to work don't work anymore. And we all move on. But together, we are surfing the wave. (laughs) So today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark. I'm going to play a little message from Robin Cutler from Ingram in a minute. But uh, before we get into that, just wanted to say that I use Ingram Spark to go wide with my print books, and this is really important. I I get I've had quite a few emails. People say, "Oh, but I'm in Ku. How do I use Ingram?" So Ku is only for ebooks. So even if you want to be exclusive for your ebooks, you can be wide with your print books and your audiobooks. So you, you know, you can use Ingram. Basically, if you don't use Ingram, you cannot reach bookstores, libraries, and other sales outlets that need a discount for their business model. So basically, how I work is I publish on KDP Print, and Ingram Spark with the same ISBN, and in that way, I get to sell uh, books, you know, on Amazon. But also, I get to sell into bookstores and libraries. And as I mentioned last week, you know, someone spotted <laughs> books in libraries in the wild. I've spotted my own books in bookstores, which is kind of cool. Plus, this even just this week, I did a bulk order to a bookstore in Michigan uh, because of Ingram Spark. And if you do live events, you can also do bulk discounts uh, on like boxes of books and stuff. So it's super useful. And Robin is going to have a message in a minute, but you can also use. So the promo code, if you want to get started with Ingram Spark. Uh, there is a title upload fee, but you can get it uh, free by using promo code NANO2020, so N-A-N-O 2020, before March 31st, 2020. And you get free title upload on print books and uh, all ebooks or both with Ingram Spark. So I only use Ingram Spark for print. I do um, paperbacks, I do hardbacks which you can't even do on KDP print. I do large print. Uh, so they are a fantastic service I, and I, I love having my books wide. so that is cool and a word coming up from Robin in a minute. Before we get into that, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing of the show. But my time is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. I was having a conversation the other day with a fellow podcaster who's been podcasting also for a very, very long time. And we were talking about the things that keep us going. And I mentioned Patreon. I said, you know, to be honest, every single day somebody knew Uh, start sponsoring the podcast. And even the extra couple of dollars a month is very well appreciated. It's also the emotional support and the knowledge that the show is useful. Um, Because the self-doubt, I mean, (laughs) I suffer from it just as much as everyone else. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Anyway, thanks to everyone supporting the show. Clearly, I've had a difficult (laughs) week. So, thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks to new patrons Kelly Flanagan, Asher Harkness, Lena Maria, Jamie DJ Shepherd, Keith Ryan's, Connor Whiteley, and Ectar Barley. I really appreciate your support on Patreon, like the tweets and emails. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, including the backlist. So if you want more audio from me, you can get it by joining the Patreon at patreon.com patreo com forward slash the creative pen. And yes, I need to do the QA <laughs> this soon, this week, promise. Uh right, here's a word from the lovely Robin from Ingram Spark, and then we'll get into the interview. Mm-hmm.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Robin Cutler, director of Ingram Spark, an award-winning independent publishing platform that offers authors, including Joanna Penn, a way to publish and distribute print and e-books to over 39,000 online and physical booksellers and libraries worldwide. The new year always brings about resolutions, and if you're listening to the Creative Penn podcast, one of yours may be to write and publish your book this year. If so, we hope you'll consider making IngramSpark part of your publishing journey. With dozens of trim sizes, color, hardcovers, paperbacks, ebooks, global distribution, along with free publisher education to help you succeed, IngramSpark believes it's your content, we just help you do more with it. Do more with your book this year when you get started at www.ingramspark.com.
0: Kate Harrison is the best-selling author of 13 novels and seven non-fiction books, which have sold over a million copies and been translated into 25 languages. She was formerly a TV producer at the BBC, and her latest book is Pitch Power, Discover What Makes Your Book Irresistible and
2: How to Sell It. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you, Joanna. I am so excited to be here because I listen to the podcast every week. It's going to be quite freaky being here as a guest. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm glad to have you on the show because, of course, you you are incredibly well-published in many ways. But we're not going to talk about publishing today. We're talking about this uh, book on pitching, which is fantastic. But before we do, just tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing in the first place.
2: So I absolutely loved writing as a kid, but being an author wasn't a real job, not the kind of thing anyone I knew did. So I became a journalist and then a TV reporter and producer. And then I finally entered what I call my beanbag days, which were developing new ideas for programs at the BBC. So kind of sitting around, doing ideas, showers, the whole caboodle. But the writing bug definitely didn't leave. And I wrote in my spare time and had my first novel conventionally published back in 2003. That was a comedy about a nasty school reunion. And then I've written across the genres. Ever since, I'm really hard to define, so I've done a YA trilogy, thrillers, women's fiction. I indie published the 5-2 diet book on Kindle in 2012, helped by your podcast, and some (laughs) other authors that I knew were doing it. And that gave me a whole different career as an accidental diet guru. Um, So now I'm a bit of a hybrid. (laughs) I do um, what interests me at the time, and I work out on a project-by-project basis, whether I'm going to go with conventional publishing as I did um, for a book that's going to come out in a couple of years, just sold that or do what I've done with pitch power, which is um, to sell it so I can keep that creative control.
0: Well, and that well, I'm going to ask you about this then because that's really interesting. So you talked about developing new ideas for TV, and of course, each of those ideas would have had a different route to market. And the way you're talking about books is is the same thing. But how do you decide this book would be good indie? This book would be good traditional?
2: It's a mixture of factors depending on where I see the market going and what my expectations are for the book. So. Um, In the case of the first book that I did, the Diet book, that had um, nothing to do with making a choice. It was just my existing publisher said, no, we don't think you're an authority on this. We don't think we can sell the book. And having planned it already, I thought, well, you know, Kindle was coming up. I knew friends who'd done it. I'd listened to you. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And it went on to sell all over the place, more than my novels, did incredibly well. And after that, I just saw that freedom of opportunity. Partly it's to do with... niche so um, a book about pitching for authors is not going to have a a huge potential audience but it's hopefully going to have a really engaged one whereas the book that I sold over the summer that's coming out in two years that's sold in America it's sold in the UK to conventional publishers all over the world because I guess it's got a little bit more mainstream appeal and because it's a novel that I would really like to see in the bookshops it's much easier for them to do mass market distribution and i'm really excited about both ways i love i love doing it both ways Mm,
0: I think that's a great way uh, of looking at it. Um, and obviously you've been building your career for a long time. So you, you've you put yourself into the place where you have that those choices as well. And I think that's really important. But let's get into the pitch book. Um, so people listening, you know, a, a lot of indie authors. So why is it important to know how to pitch your book, even if you decide to go um, the indie route?
2: Because the pitch isn't just relevant to pitching publishers and agents, it is actually the key to knowing how to reach your ideal readers. And when people hear about pitch, they think, oh, it's the hard sell. It's the total opposite, as far as I'm concerned. It's about really getting to understand your book's DNA, what it offers, and then working out how to express it in the most enticing way possible. And then you can make those decisions I was talking about, about how to publish it and at every stage. So the process of coming up with a Pitch means understanding things like genre. If you're writing a novel, it's pinpointing that central story question that people will like. If it's nonfiction, it's the need that you're meeting. But where I differ, I think, from perhaps some very hard sell versions of pitching, is looking into the emotional benefits. How does your reader really feel when you are reading, when they're reading the book? And how do they feel after they've finished? And once you've worked that out, it can influence everything, your book descriptions, but also all your other decisions. So things like title, cover, the categories you put things into. And this benefit thing, it's something that came from my work in TV, really. We really wanted to understand what the viewer was experiencing and why they might choose one channel at one time of day and one kind of program. And you can see that that is starting to come into publishing. So I don't know if you've noticed, but um, on UK Amazon, you get a lot more subtitles now, which are telling us things like the most suspenseful, unboundable thriller in 2020, or um, there was um, a big book on big hit on both sides of the Atlantic uh, one day in December that was called the heartwarming and uplifting bestseller that everyone's falling in love with. These are not in the title, but they are telling the reader what they want to expect. And I think for so long, publishers assumed that there are a group of pure thriller readers over here and there's a group of pure romance readers over there. And while that might be true, I think there's loads in the middle who have different moods and different needs at different times, and they want a signal From you as an indie author or from a publisher that they're going to get what they want at that time if they invest their time and their money in the book and there's Mm -hmm. one final point actually which is that if you get it wrong if you haven't sussed out the pitch we all know that there is no reader so angry as a reader scorned (laughs) who feels that they've been missold a book it's a waste of time more than money and they will go on the review sites and they will really go to town on your book Whereas if you get it right, you've got a lifelong fan.
0: Yeah, wow. There's so much in there. But I do want to just comment on those subtitles because, of course, that is against the Amazon Terms of Service and something Indies get very upset about because they don't seem to police it for traditional publishers. But it is um, it is a rule on Amazon if you, if the if the words are not actually in the official subtitle, they can't be used on that field um, so I don't know if you knew that as a I
2: did know that and I have no idea how they get away with it but it seems to work for them well, and I, I wonder if there's a way of a, a way that they will develop that
0: yeah I, there's you know, definitely been a crackdown for Indies but um just a, apart from that I do I think it, there are pros and cons uh, again I mean I've also seen backlash against like the twist you will never see coming which everyone sees coming and then it gets kind of <laughs> terrible terrible review so I think there's I, I'm not sure about about the putting the words on it. But I really like the idea of this emotional benefit. And also because the Google SEO kind of change in search engine and uh, voice search and things is all about search intent. So that really feeds into what you're saying, which is, for example, you know, um, w- when things are miserable in the news, people might want that uplifting book. Um,
2: although personally, I reach for horror. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's whatever, whatever floats your boat where escapism is concerned I mean you can still get that emotional benefit across in things like endorsements it's quite hard to say of your own book this is the most heartwarming book you've ever read but (laughs) if you have another author saying so that's another way to get intent and get that SEO to pick up on that I think maybe Mm. the subtitles won't last but working out what the benefits are that is something that can really shape your author career I think
0: Uh, and I think you're so right and um, it is very difficult. So I'm going to, I had sent you some questions, but I'm just going to jump around because this brings up to me that the biggest problem, which is if you're a discovery writer or a panther, which I am, um, I tend not to know what's happening in the book. I tend not to know what the emotional promise or the emotional benefit might be, um, until much later in the process. (laughs) So if people (laughs) listening are like, yeah, I feel that way too. What can we do before we get into writing that will help us um, at that later stage?
2: I think that as soon as you start with an idea you are beginning to make decisions and writing a pitch right at the beginning which is how I always do it doesn't mean that you're locked into those decisions but what it does is it starts you as an author I think getting in touch with the emotional possibilities and the story possibilities. So first of all, you always want that hook or that story question, the big thing that you're going to get across to your readers, or if you're pitching for a conventional deal to agents and publishers, the thing that is going to entice them in and think, oh, the only way I can answer that story question is to read your book. So that is the first thing that you want to start with might be an amazing setting or it might be a protagonist that you're putting in a really horrible situation. We love to do that, don't we, as writers. Once you've got that in place, then I, I find that writing a short paragraph or a couple of paragraphs begins to bring up those questions in your head. You start to think, well, what kind of story is this? Where might I see it in a bookshop? Or what kind of feelings might I have around this character and pretty soon I find, and when I'm working with authors as well, they they start to say, well, it's this and it's not that. And you don't have to then be discovering all the twists and turns of the plot. And even though I'm a bit more of a planner than a pantser, I find things change. So I will go back to my pictures. I go through it and think, OK, what's the difference between what I'm writing and what I thought I was setting out to write and which one is more feels more true to me? So it's a touchstone. And the other thing it really does for me, writing, having a title and a little thing that that is almost starting to make that promise to readers is also telling me that I can do it because even 20 plus books on, um, the thought of setting out on an 80,000, 100,000 word journey is pretty intense for me. It's a marathon. It's hard going. And just being able to imagine that this is on the back of a book or on a book description in Amazon Somehow it just gives me the motivation to keep going.
0: Mm. So just g- give us an example of of a story question then. I mean, is it the same as like a log line for a movie? Because I find these very, very difficult.
2: <laughs> they are quite different. And, you know, the hooks and the story questions depend very much on genres. So I spoke to a lot of different writers um, preparing the book because I have one way of working and different people have different approaches. You've interviewed Simon Toyne yourself um, brilliantly on the podcast in the past. He wrote the Sanctus trilogy. Like me, he worked in telly and he put it really well to me. He said that the hook is the question and then the story and the plot is the answer. So He was writing the novel and he talks about it in the book, the uh, Solomon Creed, which is his fourth book. And his hook there and his story question that relates to it is how do you save someone who is already dead? So that's a a nice, open, intriguing question. When you then start getting down into log lines, a log line is, is much more specific than that. It gives you a sense of who the main character is, what the setting is, and Hopefully it includes the hook within there, but when you're looking then at pitching to TV studios or to the movies and similar, a a kind of a feelings question, which is what that one Solomon Creed has got there. How do you save someone who's already dead? They want a bit more. And the good thing is you you can do these by genre. So rather than me say, here's hundreds and we could talk about them for hours, search by genre. Find books or movies or TV that are in your kind of genre and see how they do it. There's lots on The Hollywood Reporter, the BBC um, Writers' Room website, and they will give you... I mean, I I did think you might ask this, so I got a couple off of ones which were commissioned from The Hollywood Reporter reporting on them last year. So here's a classic logline. When a former... The thing's called Tommy coming to our screen soon, when a former high-ranking NYPD officer becomes the first female chief of police for LA, she uses her unflinching honesty and hardball tactics to navigate the social, political and national security issues that converge with enforcing the law.
0: Mm, There's no question there. There isn't
2: a question, Mm. No. Mm. Except for maybe there's a question that's kind of got an undercurrent there in terms of what kind of issues are going to come about. What is she going to have to navigate? And especially where are her unflinching honesty and hardball tactics going to come into conflict with national security issues um, and the social and political stuff that she's also going into moving from NY to L.A.? Mm. But you have got, so the logline is is a bit more straight, I guess, whereas the story questions will, if you turn that round, it might be what is she going to do when X, Y, Z thing happens that totally um, flies in the face of her unflinching honesty and hardball tactics. Mm.
0: No, I think I I get the, so the story question is kind of more the giving the sort of, promise or as you say that the book will answer the question but the the log line is more about the character the world the setting the um and we've I've had people on talking about log lines before I just wanted to separate out that question to to the kind of log
2: line detail so because a hook could be anything really if you look at it it could be the the it could be the title if you have a really fantastic title then that that is the first hook and I actually see this as as part of your seduction of either your reader or your agent, if you're pitching to an agent, you're starting with the title in the subject line of your email that you send or it's the first thing people see when they search and they're see they searching for romantic novels, say. They see the titles, they've never heard of you, but the title begins to hook them in. And then the next line is the next stage of the hook and it might be this extraordinary setting or it might be one line The classic one that I heard over the last year is for the book 13, the serial killer isn't um, on trial, he's on the jury. So immediately that's a hook. You're, You're coming into that and you really want to know, oh, how is that possible? And that gets you reading the book.
0: Mm, and that to me that is a much better subtitle than and it is like a hook and a subtitle because 13 is could be anything but the subtitle there is gives it a much better um and obviously it's a crime novel so that really does give all the um signals that you mentioned and then of course the cover I know the book you mean um uh, you know the cover indicates crime as well so one of the questions that I, is coming up and I know we're talking a lot about fiction for non-fiction people I feel this is so much easier I I mean like your book pitch power <laughs> you know discover yes. what makes your book irresistible on how to sell it I mean it, it's a clear need and a promise and you get that and in fact I, I thought I'd tell you you sent me a, an e-copy I've actually bought the print copy because I think it's so good so to everyone listening Thank you. you know definitely put it on your shelf because it's one of those I'm, I'm, I'm sure listeners know and you've you've heard me talk about this I still struggle with this and this would be the biggest problem so take someone like me and I'm looking at um you know, some of my books and I'm going, okay, you know, these get good reviews, but um, not enough people are finding them. How do I like reverse engineer if people listening want to relaunch a book or, you know, redo a series um, or redo a tagline or something like that? How can we reverse engineer this into books that are already written?
2: I think there are two separate things here. You're looking at the book itself that you've produced, and then you're looking at the market. So Understanding what your book is is one of the hardest things. It's really difficult for people after immersing themselves in a book for however long it's taken to write it and edit it 100, 120,000 words, however long it is to then step back and say, Well, what actually is this? If you've already published the book, actually, you've got lots of things to go on in terms of looking at your Amazon reviews picking out some of the words that come out, both the positive words and maybe some of the critical ones to see where maybe if the book's not doing as well as you'd like it to be doing, people are being missold. What I was talking about earlier where they're, they're getting the wrong signals somehow and making sure that the good bits that people highlight are definitely coming out in things like your title, in your first line of your pitch, every level of the book description is, is really leading them on that journey towards buy now, read now, that's the first stage and that's really about, about being able to look at your own work. And then the other side of it is to look within the industry. It might be that um, the authors who are similar to you are picking a different kind of title, they are looking at a different cover, They the emotional benefit that they are giving across is being signalled in a more powerful way, so you want to be looking at your book descriptions, the brilliant thing about being indie is, of course, that you can tweak whenever you want to. You know, a lot of publishers put up, conventional mainstream pub- publishers will put up the blurb and they will not touch it from year to year. And of course, as as an author, if you're in that contract, you have to ask them to change it for you. Having that ability to do it yourself means you can fiddle around with it. You can say, right, OK. If I'm trying to make a connection to an existing author, have I got an endorsement? Can I use words that are similar to the words that they use in their blurbs? Do I do I fit, switch it around? Is it actually the setting that might pull people in where I've been talking more about the protagonist? You're questioning each of those individual things, but you're looking at it from the point of view of your reader rather than you.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. What what about uh, keeping things fresh across a series? Um, Because it would seem like if you've, you know, your emotional promise, once you've decided this is a small town romance, for example, um, how, you know, how do you keep that fresh for every book apart from this is another couple or, you know, within genre fiction, which is, uh, you know, great selling, how do we do that, keeping it fresh?
2: When you're writing it or in the selling or both?
0: Well, both. I mean, we're talking here about, you know, indie authors writing book descriptions in terms of that type of pitch. How do we go, right, you know, apart from this is the next one in the series?
2: (laughs) I guess that's when I actually come back to why I write a pitch and why I often encourage people to do do that at the beginning of the writing process. Because then if you are in a series, and I've written series, you can start to look at what you are retaining from that first one in terms of that emotional promise and that connection and what those characters are delivering to the existing readers and potential new ones and where you might be pushing it in a different direction. So I do talk a bit about the different, all the different possible definitions of what we call stories. You know, is it seven basic story types? Is it a hundred? Is it two? But I think those archetype stories, which you can read about um, and you can find them everywhere, you know, that the hero's journey was what kicked it all off. They give you ideas for what you might be able to do with your characters. Because if if you're writing a romance series, and I've done this women's fiction series, and at the beginning, at the end of book one, I had a character who had found her true love and we liked her true love. Well, then when, when it came to writing a second book, because the first book had been so popular, well, what on earth do you do with her? And that's when you go back to the archetypes and you go back to the pitch and you think, well, what might I be doing to this person that is still painful, still puts them into conflict with the world around them, but retains the sense of emotional satisfaction that a romance reader got at the end of book one, where they find Mr. Wright? And I think although you are writing perhaps a series, each story structure doesn't have to be identical. The, The benefits have to be offering a similar thing because you're hoping to take the readers with you it doesn't have to be exactly the same story. Mm,
0: no, that's great. And I was just thinking there of um, a book which uh, didn't, uh, Bridget Jones's baby, no spoilers for anyone who hasn't like read the book or seen the movie, but very, very different. Yeah. <laughs> they decided yeah. they wanted to give the same emotional thing for the movie, but the book was completely not that at all. And it didn't, you know, resonate so much with the audience. So, um, yeah, it is really interesting how once and- a, Once readers love what they love, you can't just switch it up.
2: (laughs) It's tone. Tone is so vital. It's the Maya Angelou quote, people will not remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think that's the case with books. I will look at a book cover, even if I can't remember the plot, I'll think, oh, yes, I remember how it felt to finish that book. Or I have a real sense of the jeopardy or the roller coaster ride it took me on. Mm,
0: No, you're right. Okay, so um, if people do want to pitch an agent um, or a publisher with their book, are there any things that you would do differently at that stage than what we've already talked about in terms of an indie author writing a book description, for example?
2: You are pushing forward. Um, A business proposal, really, I always think in an email. So you are both selling your idea, but you're also selling the concept that you might be fun and profitable to work with. So your query email, if you are getting in touch with an agent, is doing those two things. It is seducing them from that subject line. But it is also saying that you are a professional and you want to enter into a professional and mutually lucrative relationship. So you are the story is the first thing. i mean, if you have if you are a brilliant person and you are incredibly professional, but your story is hackneyed or it is not interesting or it doesn't have a hook, none of those things matter. But making sure that you have your book described in a really sharp and the most desirable way possible, is key and making sure that you've edited that and read it out loud and printed it off so that there isn't a single error because agents are very pernickety about these things. That's the (laughs) first thing. (laughs) Um, But I think it's also much more important when you're pitching an agent, once you've got this brilliant story idea across to them, to to make them see where you think you fit in the market because you might not be 100% right about that. But just starting to do that by offering things like comp titles, comparator titles, those are the authors or the books that you think you have similarities to. Those are really important for an agent and a publisher because they want to know where they might be able to sell in the market, that there is an audience, a readership out there uh, for your book. And that that applies really for fiction. Um, for nonfiction, yes, the concept, again, not so much the story question, but the Problem that you're solving, or the new material that you're bringing to a familiar subject, are important alongside that for non fiction. An agent stream is to find out that you have some kind of a platform as well, <laughs> that uh, you know you've got followers, that you have already um, done some TV appearances, or whatever it is. Of course, the irony of that when it's nonfiction is that if you have that platform already, it's quite an interesting decision as to whether you want to work with an agent or t- at all, or whether you are better off using that platform directly as an indie.
0: Yeah, well, wow. OK, again, lots I want to come back on. Um Oh, which one to start with? Let's go with the comp thing. Um, so the the comp titles that you mentioned. So uh, what are some tips here? Because I've seen a lot of authors who've gone, "Oh, my books are like Jane Austen for fans of Jane Austen, um, you know, or Dickens or something, and uh, dead dead famous authors, or you know, even Umberto Eco or something. You know, dead famous uh, authors. So um, how famous should one go, um, and how dead or? Even dead, or and or can it be um for and also I guess there's a lot about ego here. I mean, um you know, or, or can it be for fans of particular films, for example, as well as books?
2: It's all about being savvy, and I also think having comps that are appropriate but also maybe a little bit surprising and that's where you run into problem with dead authors (laughs) because (laughs) often they've been overused you know the next Agatha Christie the next Umberto Eco whatever it might be also the publishing world has changed so much and we have no idea whether Agatha Christie if she were to be published today would be a bestseller so that's why more recent titles are a much better bet but the really successful comp titles become cliches in their own right. So if you say to an agent, oh, my book's the next Gone Girl or the next Girl on the Train, it tells us nothing because we've heard it Mm -hmm. so many times before. And another writer that I spoke to about the book was Will Dean, who wrote Dark Pines, which has been really successful, uh, Nordic Noir, I think. And when he was pitching agents, he did choose famous authors, but more unusual titles. So for, to pitch his, he came up with Stephen King's Needful Things meets Gillian Flynn's Sharp Objects. So immediately that is a lot more compelling than, say, Misery meets Gone Girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and
0: Sharp, sharp Objects was fantastic, uh, you know, far superior in my opinion. <laughs> well, many
2: people have said that, exactly. So you are appealing to an agent's, um, you're piquing their interest because you're not going for the obvious seat. You're showing the knowledge of the market. And genre, So that shows that you're professional, but you're still using the mega sellers to suggest your book could sell really well. And on, on the movie and the TV side, I find that generally putting one or two in there in amongst quite a lot of books can work. Um, publishers are naturally a bit suspicious of that. They're a bit wary because they, they think it, it is a different world. but. You can do it. And I've done it, especially where I think maybe publishing hasn't cottoned on to a potential subject matter yet. So I am the world's biggest fan of medical drama. OK, they are my guilty pleasure. I watched <laughs> Ray's Anatomy on a, on. I only discovered it about two years ago. Watched all 13 series, you know, love it and also love the reality stuff, the 24 hours and A&E. So I've written this um, book that's going to be conventionally published about um it's set in a medical world and I included Grey's Anatomy and 24 Hours in a alongside some epic love story books in my pitch because I was trying to say, you know, I don't think there is much fiction for people out there who love those shows. Now, I won't know until 2021 until I'm right, but I took a little bit of a punt there alongside the more conventional titles that I knew editors would recognise.
0: Mm, that's so, so, I've watched the whole lot of Grey's Anatomy twice.
2: <laughs> oh, OK. You're an even bigger super fan than me.
0: <laughs> I am a super fan. Also, you made me think there of, and this is more thriller, but Rob, Robin Cook's medical thrillers. Yes. I've, I've pretty much read all of those. Like, I love that a sub-niche as well. Um, but where think, are the
2: novels? Where are the Grey's Anatomy novels? There is a um, medical Mills and Boone romance I was going to say, yeah,
0: there's a lot of romance uh, about it. But, but
2: mainstream fiction, not so much. Mm. So this is my, I'm, I'm looking for a word you know, a, a sort of like, if I, if I had chicklet um and sick lit, maybe it is, it's not a cichlet. I don't know, red C- cross <laughs> lit, <med-lit. laughs>
0: uh, No, I think I think that's fantastic. Wait, wait, do you have a title for that? Do you want to mention it or no?
2: It's going to be called um, How to Save a Life. Oh so, no, brilliant, Anatomy, that's from the song. It's from the song. the song. But it is also literally How to Save a Life. So it has actually got the four steps in the, that is my bookend, the four steps of the chain of survival, which can increase the survival rate from under 10% to 75% from cardiac arrest.
0: Uh, see that's and very I, that's very clever and well you are very clever. I I know this oh, but but you. what's fascinating here okay this is a great example because that I said immediately I know that as part of the um, it, it's in the song. But of course we can't we can use song titles yes. as covers. We just can't use as titles. We can't use lyrics. Yeah. I mean that that is a lyric in the song but also it's well known enough that that it couldn't be copyrighted i guess yes
2: exactly and it is literally a thing that you can do
0: yes you can yeah so it's but in my head as a Grey's Anatomy fan i get it so very you're immediately
2: singing it it's the earworm now isn't it a very nice earworm it is too
0: (laughs) although it it can't overtake the witcher uh, earworm which is totally in my head Do you know that one (laughs) No, not yet. Oh, with that, now you, you have to go look at it. Okay. <laughs> Just Google Witcher earworm, everyone, and it will be stuck in your head. Um, anyway, back onto the the things. Right, so we've done um, comps. Uh, the other thing is that you have mentioned a little bit about saying about your platform. Now, this is also interesting uh, about you because you write under how many names and, I mean, oh. lots of names per genre. Yes. So, And I do, obviously, um, and I've also considered pitching for a traditional publisher, under another name because my name has become synonymous with Indie. So um, where is the balance between starting again with another pen name, as you have multiple times, or using the platforms
2: we already have? It's a really difficult decision, and I don't actually know if I've done the right thing. So the the new love story is going to have a completely different name. My thrillers have retained my first name but a different surname. (laughs) I think that a lot of my decision and a publisher's decision around um, this new one was to do with algorithms in that if you put in Kate Harrison to Amazon you're going to get my diet books first and so I've almost decided that that is now although my previous women's fiction was under that name that that is almost more my non-fiction name now and You can still, though, if you decide that it's too complicated, and it may be that I live to regret having all these different names, I'm not sure, you can just tweak your bio um, for different things. So I do do this, and we can all do that. When you're looking at a bio, people think, oh, I'm going to have to expose everything about myself. But actually, it's about picking and choosing the things that resonate with readers who are going to like the particular genre of book that, they're looking at, they want to feel a kind of a connection with you as an author. Not all of them do. Some of them just want the book. But increasingly, with us living our lives online and so on, it helps for them to feel that there's a reason why you wrote that book and no one else could have. So I don't know if you're writing a, uh, a comic mummy lit book. Um, it really helps them to know that you are um, a mother of five under 10s. Um, if you are writing dark thrillers, which I do some of the time, then I totally upped the side of my career, which was in courtroom reporting and writing a TV script about uh, a serial killer. <laughs> you can pick and choose. We've all got really interesting lives and we can pick the bits and also write them tonally so that they match the tone of the book. And it doesn't have to be a career thing um, it's quite relevant because I mentioned how to save a life. When we were pitching that book in the bio, we did mention the fact that this whole book was inspired by having to give CPI to a family member and it working. That's what I had to do a few years ago, and I wrote the novel off the back of that. It took me ages to do it. But I think because of that, we're going to talk we're going to mention that in the bio because it's very powerful. It explains why I'm doing it, explains why it matters to me. And when we had people's responses after we sent the book out with that bio, almost all of them, when they came back, said, you know what, the, f- the first thing I wanted to do after closing the book, after putting down the tissues, was to um, find a first aid course near me. So if you can find different ways, even within fiction, of making it connected to your real life or the reader's real life, it, it has an impact.
0: Mm. That's fantastic. I think that book's going to do super well. <laughs> I'm going to read it. <laughs> um, I hope so. And then, um, well, there's lots we could talk about. But one last question, which is I, um, I did a great course at the Screenwriters School uh, in London. And one thing they talked about with pitching is there's the pitcher and there's the catcher. And if we just concentrate on the picture, which is us, um, you know, we we will miss because we also have to think about the catcher, the person on the other side. So whether that's the reader or whether that is an agent or a particular publisher that we have in mind or something like that. So how like you clearly um, you've done so well with everything you've done because you have pitched things to the right people. <laughs> um, so how do we work that out? Like if people do want to pitch, whether it be, um, you know, Audible for an Audible original or, you know, or, or a, an agent, how how do we look for the right kind of people to catch our pitch?
2: It is so much easier than it used to be when I started out, when hardly any agents were online. When I was pitching my book back in 2002, you still sent Uh, queries through the mail and agents looked at the internet and um, giving any interviews or even having much direct contact with would-be authors as as being a really scary and stupid thing to do, now they're out there. So there is so much information that you can um, find, you can listen to podcasts, you can research specific shows. So once you've got your comp titles or your comp shows, Find out who represents those, which editors have edited those. Um, If you're looking for a conventional publishing deal, you can really use the information that's out there to start to target that and to build a dialogue in some cases. I mean, you won't always be able to do that because if you're pitching an idea, an agent may only come back to you if you are... Of interest if that particular project is of interest. But if you are doing things like going to conferences or participating in online pitch competitions on Twitter or other materials, you know, other social media, you can start to get a sense that the um, things I mentioned before, like looking at Hollywood Reporter, looking at uh, the bookseller online, you do require subscriptions after a certain level. But if you're doing it, um, on a regular basis, you can still get access to so much of that information for free, and then you can start, yeah, just writing writing those lists down. Keep a list of a book that has re- sold recently that you think actually there's something about that that's similar to mine. Without it then becoming a direct competitor title, because a, an agent or a publisher is not going to publish a book that is so similar, uh, or sell a book that is so similar that it puts them in in competition with another client. But yeah, looking for that information. And when it comes to readers, one of the really interesting people that I interviewed um, in the book, and I've known her for ages, is Susie Quinn, who has written across loads of genres, and she is the queen at this, understanding what readers want by going to them, engaging with them on Twitter, on Facebook. Her first book was actually inspired by going into Amazon and typing in erotica and waiting to see what it what it suggested. And this is way back in 2012, um, around the time Fifty Shades was doing well and just finding out what people wanted to read about erotica wise. You know, That was a really early adopter of kind of audience insight. And now she just engages with them all the time and and even changes her book, even changes her titles, the writing itself based on what the Amazon reviews say.
0: Mm, wow. So much to think about and uh, absolutely recommend your book, Pitch Power. And where can people find you and all your pen names and everything you do online?
2: <laughs> all my pen names. Who knows whether there'll be an, even be a new one by this time next year. So my website is kate-harrison.com. You can find everything about me. I've got a cheat sheet on titles to download um, and all about my pen names. But you can also find me uh Twitter and Instagram at Kate Writes Books.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Kate. That was great.
2: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
0: So I hope you found the discussion with Kate super useful today and that it gave you some things to think about around your pitch, however you want to publish, whether you want to get an agent, go with traditional publishing uh, or go indie. And if you've already if you're already out there like me, you're thinking about how to improve your process. So yeah, I hope it was useful. And obviously, let me know, tweet me at the Creative Pen, or leave a comment on the show notes, and uh, that will be cool. In the next show, I'll be talking about empowering authors around copyright with Rebecca Giblin, and we will be discussing some studies that she has done on the publishing industry, what publishing clauses to watch out for, uh, why copyright is so important for authors. And we discuss the inevitable (laughs) impact of AI on copyright since Rebecca and I geek out around tech and copyright. So uh, that is coming next week. In the meantime, remember to register for the Scrivener webinar if you want to join me. Uh, You can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash Jan30, J-A-N 30, and you will be able to join us for that webinar. Happy writing and I'll see you next time.